I just thank you this morning that you are at work in our world and even in the midst of tragedy, as Amy prayed, that you can take something that was meant for evil and use it for amazing good. And, uh, you know, we always believe, Father, that what human importunity is your opportunity. And good things will come. Uh, You're stirring. You're shaking our world, Father. You're shaking our complacencies. You're helping us realize that life is brief. Uh, We're just a breath away from eternity. And so, Lord, as we have this gift called life, help us to maximize our time on earth. Help us to use our minds, our hearts, our, our resources, all that you've given us, Father, to bring honor and glory to your name. And, Lord, I pray that uh, as we leave today, may we feel like, you know, I can, I can do better. I can, I can have a greater impact if I really uh, give my life to you in a more full way. And I trust you at a level I never have before so that you can trust us in turn with, to be able to do even more than what we are currently doing. We thank you for that, Father. Open our hearts. Help us not to just shut things off, but help us to have an open heart and open mind and help us to have uh, discovery happen to us. Help us to have an aha moment this morning where your voice breaks into our soul and says, This is what I want you particularly to hear today. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen, amen. You may be seated. Now, how many, uh, you actually know the story of Schindler. And maybe you've seen the movie, Schindler's List. Great movie. A little intense, you know. Uh, It's really the story of Oscar Schindler. I've actually been to Israel. I've been to Vat Shem, the museum, the Holocaust Museum. I've seen the roadway, the trees of righteousness. There's a tree there for Oscar Schindler because of what he did during the Second World War. But you have to understand, Oscar Schindler was not a nice guy. You know, he started out in Poland and he joined the Nazi party. And he was a a German entrepreneur. And so... He's working in Poland and he's taking some of the Jews from the ghetto and he's employing them at his kitchenware factory. And this is beneficial to him because he's getting free labor. How many know if you're an employer and you're getting free labor, he's probably cutting down a lot of costs. And uh, he's being protected. But in one sense, he's actually protecting these workers from going to the concentration camp at Auschwitz. So... Now, when they're deciding to close Portland's ghetto in in, uh, Warsaw, the Jews are either sent to the death camps or labor camps at Platzau. And at Platzau, many workers die. And those who are not productive are transferred to the death camp, you know. So when the tide turns on the eastern front and German forces are retreating, Schindler begins to manufacture military stuff for the Nazis. But By this time, he's become very disillusioned. So he's creating faulty stuff. And the Jewish workers are helping him create faulty stuff. How many know that doesn't help when you're fighting a war and something's not working, you know? So his accountant, a Jewish guy by the name of Itchar Stern, uh, he's... They're, they're actually creating a little conspiracy, uh, conspiracy now to start saving some of these Jewish people. And so when Germany finally surrenders, Schindler knows he's not in a good state with the Allies, right? He's been a Nazi. He's going to be tried. So he's trying to flee from the Allies and because he knows he's used the Jews as slave labor. But as he's preparing to flee, he's now surrounded by about a thousand Jews, Okay, and they they actually in the movie they create a ring for him. Actually, they appreciate what he did. They actually feel like you know what you know, Oscar, you you actually saved our lives. You know, they were appreciative of that, and so they said, "We've written a paper for you, and every one of us has signed it, so that when you are captured, or if you are captured, you can explain to them that you helped save our lives." Okay. And then they gave him that gold ring with the inscription on it, what Itchar translates. It's in Hebrew from the Talmud, and it says this, whoever saves one life saves the entire world. And how many have seen Schindler's List? This is the opening scene, by the way. And so he's weeping now. I mean, you know, it's, you ever have those moments in life where you just realize, you, you have this epiphany moment. He's having an epiphany moment right now. He's weeping, and he's lamenting. He says, I could have got more. I could have got more. 
In other words, the 1,100 people that he spared, he's realizing he could have actually saved more people from the concentration camp. And he's lamenting. He said, if I'd have made more money. He said, I wasted so much money. You have no idea, he says to them. Again, Itzar emphasizes, listen, you've saved generations because of what you've done. I didn't do enough. You did so much, you know, Itzar reaffirms. Emotionally undone, Schindler muses, this car, what use is this car? I, I kept this car. I could have saved 10 more people. Now he's, now he's, now he's reevaluating him his life right there in that moment. He said, and then taking off his Nazi lapel badge, which was made of gold, he said, I could have saved more. But today there are 6,000 descendants of Schindler's Jews living in the U.S. and Europe and many in Israel. All of the world's possessions are not as precious as a person. It's true. Randy Alcorn relates, five minutes after we die, we'll know exactly how we should have lived. Isn't that an amazing statement? Five minutes after we die, we'll know how we should have lived. But God has given us in his word how we should live so that we don't have to keep guessing. And that there, you know, there's a, a, a blueprint, a game plan, a, a, an ability to trust God to know his will for our lives. And he's given us his spirit so we can be empowered to do what he's blueprinting for us to do in our lives. And so you have to ask yourselves, five minutes after I die, what will I wish I would have given away while I still had the chance? What a great statement. In other words, how can I invest my time, my life, my resources in such a way that when I'm on the other side of eternity, I can look back and say, that was well worth it. Because one of the things that happens as you get older is you realize you don't need as much as you thought you needed. It's really amazing. You're just, you know, and eventually as you get old, you start downsizing. You go, wow, how did I accumulate all this stuff? And most of it is not needed. We need to think, change our thinking. You know, a lot of people right now, even in this room, are stressed out because of your finances. Finances create a lot of emotional pain in our lives. We never feel we have enough. And especially if we're spending more that we're taking in, it really creates a lot of stress. As a matter of fact, I was listening the other day and I said, Canadians have a $1.8 trillion consumer debt. That, that, that's, that's amazing. That, that's not talking about mortgages. We're just talking about consumer debt. They figured out that the average Canadian owes $22,000 of consumer debt. The average Albertan owes $29,000 of consumer debt. And you cannot make me believe that we're walking in great financial freedom. Because we're not. That thing weighs on people's souls. And then what happens is the things that we would really like to do many times, we're unable to do it because we're not really free. And then a need comes along and we'd like to do more, but we don't have the freedom to do what we really would like to do. You know, if you don't think economics is a preoccupation in North America, every single election, that's all it's about. People aren't making decisions on morality, they're making decisions on economics. Jesus talked about money more than any other topic. And, you know, I feel like I failed our church because I haven't talked a lot on this topic. But Jesus did. And he said these words in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus said you can't do it. It's not possible to do it. You have to make a decision. You know, it's really interesting. It's, you know, I always say it this way. Money is a great servant and a terrible master. It really works that way. How do we get control emotionally of our money? I think it, gets, it starts there because it comes from within ourselves. 
Have you ever wondered where we would begin when it comes to giving? New Testament scholar Ralph Smith says it this way. Tithing actually was a very old custom in the ancient world. Egyptians, Babylonians, Assyrians, and Canaanites all practiced tithing even before nation came into existence. Israel came into existence as a nation. Did all of the people in the Old Testament always tithe? It seems that at certain periods in Israel history, primarily periods of reform and revival, the people gave their tithes faithfully and abundantly. But how many know when they weren't serving God the way they should, one of the first things that you'll notice is that they weren't giving. And actually the temple became in disuse and the Levites had to stop working at the temple and they had to go you know, try to make subservient lifestyle and the temple was neglected. It's just really interesting, you know, how that all kind of works out. And then you have a move of God, and there's a repairing. How many notice when you read your Bible, they repair the temple, and, and people start tithing again. And you can always tell when there's a spiritual high and a spiritual low, and it's always gauged on the ability to give or not to give. It's very fascinating. Because Jesus said this, that where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. And so we have to ask ourselves, where's my focus in life? Randy Alcorn in his book, The Treasure Principle, says the meaning of the word tithe, it just means a tenth. And then he talks about not only were they to tithe, but they were also to give free will offerings. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9, it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. You know, when people say to me, Pastor, you know, I, I can't afford to give. I said, No, you can't afford not to. You say, How do you start? You give the first ten. And you live on the other 90. Actually, you know, if I sat down with young people right now, and I, I have sat down with my daughters, and I've chatted with them about giving, and I said to them, listen, you know, no one, no one really instructs us. It's kind of an area that nobody likes to talk about, and sometimes we don't even want to receive any instruction from it. But if you could actually learn to give 10% and save 10% and learn to live on 80% and not spend more than the 80%, eventually you're going to be in great shape. You really will be. And for some of you, that's what you need to figure out. And, and for some of you, I can't afford to start doing that. And I'm going to argue today very nicely that you have to learn how to do this. And it will actually discipline you and you will get out of your jam. Okay? So, God's children were to give to him first and not last. When his children weren't giving as they should, God says this in the book of Malachi. This is where my text is this morning. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. This is God speaking. But you ask, how did we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Woe to you, teachers of the... Oh, okay. I'm moving on. I've got some other things to say. That thing just jumped out and... <clears throat> yeah, what am I doing here? Okay. Just looking at my notes here. Okay. Jesus, oh, I see what I'm, I'm doing. Jesus validated the mandatory tithe even on small things. Now, because, you know, a lot of people, they act like, you know, old tithing pastor. That's in the Old Testament. Christians don't have to tithe. But let me just point out something that Jesus said in Matthew 23. He said, he's, he's rebuking the religious leaders. He goes, yeah, you guys do tithe. You're giving a tenth. He says, even on the spices like mint, dill, and cum. In other words, you're tithing on... You're like into minutiae. You've got it right down. You're, 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 you're figuring it exactly right, you know. But he said the problem with you guys is that you've, you've, you're not concerned about the more important things. You've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And then he says this, and this is why I think this little line people forget about. He says, you should have practiced the latter, which is what? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness without neglecting the former, which is what? Tithing. So Jesus is not saying don't tithe. The New Testament nowhere teaches that tithing came to an end. You're not going to find that. It just doesn't talk a lot about it in the New Testament. It just says bring you know, a, a, an offering in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, in proportion to your income. What's the proportion? Well, a tithe. You know? And the people in that day certainly understood that. Now, you know, Randy Elkhorn, who's, he says this, you know, every, he says, I always have mixed feelings on this area of giving. And you know, I can appreciate it as a pastor because, you know, how many churches, or, you know, you, you get this feeling, you come to church and people are talking about giving all the time. You cannot, you cannot say that about this church. You know, 
Len, you've been here a long time. He says, I can't even remember six sermons you've preached on it, Pastor. And he's been here 30 years. So it's not like you guys, this is an overused topic in the church. It's not. But you need to hear about this topic because it's going to help you in your personal lives. And that's what I'm motivated by. He says, you know what? He says, I always have mixed feelings. I detest legalism. I certainly don't want to try to pour, you know, old wine into new wineskins. But he says, every New Testament example of giving goes far beyond the tithe. However, none of it falls short of it. In other words, that's a beginning point. It's a timeless truth that's throughout the scriptures. Does God expect his new covenant children to give less than, you know, his, his Old Testament people? Jesus always raised the spiritual bar. How many know that? He says, you've heard it said in the law to do this, right? Don't commit adultery. But he says, even if you lust after someone in your heart, you've committed adultery. How many know? Jesus raised the bar. It's actually harder to live the New Testament life than it is the Old Testament law. Anybody know that? Way harder. Because we're supposed to live the law of love. In other words, but God has given us more to do it. He's given us himself, his spirit to live inside of us, to enable us to do that. Well, maybe... You know, you believe exclusively in grace giving and disagree with the church fathers. See, Origen, Jerome, and Augustine all taught that tithing was the minimum giving required of a Christian. These are the the early church believers. But as Randy Alcorn points out, do you really, that you think God expects less of us who have the Holy Spirit living within us and live in the wealthiest society in human history than these poor Israelites? I don't think so. Isn't it troubling that in this wealthy society, grace-giving amounts to a small fraction of the New Covenant standard? As a matter of fact, you know, most people will tell you that they're giving a lot more than they are. And the Canadian government who gets, you know, to tell you how much, how generous we are, you'll find out Canadians are not that generous in their giving. It's challenging. The tithe is God's historical method to get us on the path of giving. In a sense, it serves as a gateway to the joy of learning how to give. How many know it's really a joyous thing to be a part of the answers to other people's prayers? As a matter of fact, even under the old first covenant, it wasn't a stopping place. Don't forget the free will offering. So It's not the ceiling of giving, it's the bottom, it's the foundation, it's the floor of giving, it's just the starting blocks. You know, think of tithing as the training wheels on which to learn how to give, right? You know, once you learn to tithe, and and by the way, once you start to do it, you, you just go, this is so amazing how it works out. I mean, God does take care of his children. And as a matter of fact, let me ask us the question, why should God give me more resources if I'm not handling them the right way? And it's actually detrimental to my spiritual development. Why would God give me more? Can God really trust me? And you know, it's, it's, it's a, a two-sided thing. First of all, tithing is an expression of my trust in God to take care of me. And then secondly, it's God's expression of trust in me to do what's right with what he gives me. It works both ways. It's a relationship of trust. Paul encouraged voluntary giving, yet also described such giving as an act of obedience. Chapter 9, verse 13. Because of this service, he was speaking on giving, by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for your obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity and sharing with them and everyone else. He was speaking in the context of giving. That's why I put the little word giving in there, because the service, the service he's talking about is giving. Read the chapter. God has expectations of us even when our offerings are voluntary. Okay? So here's how I look at it. You know, tithing, and we're going to see this today, goes to the church, and offerings, then I can determine where I'm going to give my offerings. You see? You say, well, why would you think the church should get the tithe, Pastor? So that you and I can enjoy what we're experiencing every single week. As a matter of fact, we're going to see in a few minutes that uh, we receive a blessing every Sunday. How many say, you know, I come here every week and I'm blessed and the church is doing this and the church is doing that for me? Who do you think is paying for it? Us. But we're also benefiting from it. 
It's interesting that God talks about the standard here in chapter 3. And he says here, uh, I love this verse. He says, bring the whole tithe, verse 10, into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations on the earth will call you blessed. Isn't that amazing? God says, listen, if you'll do this, I will, just test me in this, I will really bless you. And you know what? You're going to be enhanced in your life. And I believe that. You know why I know that? Because I've been tithing for over four decades. And God has been faithful. Okay? So, but you know what? I was convicted this week. I felt the Spirit of God saying, but you know, Paul, you can even do better in your offerings. You can actually do more. And when I started reading some of our missionaries where they're cutting back, I'm going, you guys don't want to cut back in that area. I need to do better. I need to do more in that area. Now, a lot of people say, well, you know, we'll take, we'll take this gradually, Pastor. We really can't afford to do this. We'll start slow. You know, we'll, we'll start at 5%. And... Randy Alcorn wrote in his little book, The Treasure Principle, he says, think of it this way. He says, that's like saying I used to rob six convenience stores a year. This year, by his grace, I'm only going to rob three. (laughs) What is he saying? He's saying it's still wrong. It's not. You haven't caught it, guys. The point is not to rob God less. It's not to rob God at all, right? And I, I recognize for some people 10% is a huge sacrifice, especially if you're in a real financial bind. You know, we had a guy in our church a number of years ago, and he was a business guy, and he was a, his, his life was a mess. Everything about his life was a mess. His wife had left him. He was going through a messy divorce. His business was failing. His, he, he was physically broken. I mean, everything about his life was a mess. And I preached. I just happened to preach on tithing. And the Spirit of God spoke to him, and he said, Okay, God, i got to start obeying you because I'm not doing anything right. And he said, Pastor, it was a miracle. I started tithing. My business started picking up. He said, my life got turned around. He said, pretty soon, I I couldn't believe it. I mean, I was thriving financially. I was able to pay off all my debts and all the rest of it. He said, that really worked. You know, it really works. I said, yeah, I know. If you obey God, how many know obeying God's a good thing? Anybody know that? Disobeying God's, I don't advise that. Obeying God, very good. So let's take a look at the first uh, way that we withhold from God. It's through a lack of meaningful relationship with him. How many know we always cheat God when we don't live for him? How many say that's probably true? I'm cheating God when I'm not living for him the way I should. This is a form of turning our backs on him. We charge God with not caring for us when in reality we're being unfaithful to him. God's faithful, but we're unfaithful to him. And that's what the Israelites were doing in the day of Malachi. These guys were upset with God. And actually, when you understand when the context of this book is written, a lot of us don't realize this book and and the book in Nehemiah go together. They're in the same framework. And this is a time when Israel had, had disobeyed God, had gone into exile. God was bringing them back. And it was kind of a really struggle time. I mean, they're coming back to the land. The temple's ruined. Everything's a mess. How many know new beginnings are hard? You ever start over again in life and you're starting from scratch? This is what it was like. And now God's going to challenge them. But you're cheating me. You're not giving to me. How many of that's not, that's not an easy time to start doing the right thing? But I'll always tell people it's always the right time to do the right thing. So here's what how the, it starts out in chapter three. He says, God says, I do not change. Aren't you glad God's always the same? God's God's consistent. He's faithful. I don't change. He said. So you, O descendants of Jacob. You're not destroyed. Listen, I could have destroyed you guys. You did. You rebelled for hundreds of years against me, but I didn't destroy you. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. You've always disobeyed me. He says, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Okay, that's verse 7. Look what verse 8 says. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me, but you ask, how are we robbing God in tithes and offerings? So God is saying, this is how you return to me. You know, it's so easy for us to say, I'm going to turn my life over to God, right? 
But it's just an intellectual decision. I'm talking about really turning your life over to God and become obedient. You see, until we obey God, we haven't turned anything over to God. We're still doing our own thing. Are you catching on? He's saying, listen, you you guys haven't really returned to me. You're still doing your stuff. And part of their covenant was that they were supposed to give. I've got to ask a question. I mean, what does God expect of me as a Christian? What's the right answer? Does anybody know the right answer to this question? This is a Sunday school test. What does God expect from me as a Christian? Okay, obedience, love. Everything is the right answer. Everything. Let me ask you a question. What does God give you? Everything. What does God expect from you? Everything. So now my question is, what are you giving to God? Some things. <laughs> Let's be honest. Are we, can we honestly say, God, I just give you everything? That's a little harder, right, to say that. Because God can say, okay, I'll take you up on that. You go, I don't want him to do that, Pastor. But seriously, he could do that, right? He could just take everything. You know, look at what Deuteronomy 12 says, verse 4. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. He's talking about the Canaanites that are going into the land. Do you know that they were, and I've been to India, and they have, they have shrines everywhere. There's trees and mountaintops, and they're worshiping all over the place. So I get the picture of this, because I've seen it. It says, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all the tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. How many are already catching on? You don't worship God on your terms. You have to worship God on his terms. God says, That's not, I don't want you to worship the way the Canaanites worship. Okay? He's, he's defining what he expects. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifice, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give, and your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. How many think God's kind of laying out what he wants? Anybody see that? Anybody read this stuff? You just dismiss it. It's the Old Testament. I never, you know, how does that apply to me, right? Okay, there in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. So what is he saying? He's saying, look, I'm blessing your life. You're going to come, you're going to do this, and this is how I want you to do it. And by the way, in the New Testament, he's got the same thing. He says, come bring the, the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of your lips, giving thanks. I'm, I'm quoting from Hebrews. You're to come to the house of God. You know, he says, don't forsake the assembling of yourself as the manner some have. A lot of people go, I don't need to go to church. I can worship God anywhere. No, you can't. You're worshiping God on your terms, not on his terms. See, we don't want to hear this stuff. Because in deep down inside, there's a little rebellion inside of most of us. God goes, no, it doesn't work that way. This is how I'm going to accept it. You know, you don't think God has a certain definitive standard? Think about Moses. Remember when Moses struck the rock the second time instead of speaking to it? What did God say to him? You did not honor me in the sight of my people. You'll never go in the promised land, Moses. You'll only see it from afar. Did God not do that? Yes, he did. Let me tell you something. You cannot serve God on your terms. You must serve him on his terms. It's very simple. You say, okay, God, how do you want me to do this? You know, you are not to do as we do here today, everyone doing as they see fit. Where were they when Moses said this? Well, Deuteronomy, they were coming into the promised land. So they were not worshiping the way God wanted them to worship yet. He says, I've got a a very definitive way I want you to do stuff. And Moses said, you have to do it his way. So why bring the tithe to the place of God's choosing? Verse 22. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine, and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. What's he telling them? When you bring your... Offerings. Now, this is an agrarian society. Grain, herds, right? They're bringing it. Who gets to eat it? The people do. 
<clears throat> so what did they do? They took a cow or a lamb and they killed it and then they gave some and we'll read later on they gave some portion to the priests and the Levites and then they got a portion and then they burnt up the rest of it as an offering to God. So what we find there is the people themselves are benefiting and then he says I want you to do it you know don't just go down to the local you know your little community and do this stuff no you got to bring it and he says if you're too far away then he says uh, you can actually convert it into silver, and then when you get there, you can buy whatever you're going to want to eat or whatever the rest of it is. Okay? How many are seeing that? So God is saying, this is what I'm defining for you. And why is he making them do this so that they would learn to revere the Lord their God always? Do you know right now there are 20 million Christians in North America say, we don't need to come to a church. We'll just meet in our homes. We're Christians. But that's not the way God defined it. You know, I'll tell you why. What's scary about that? Can I tell you what's really scary about that? You got eight people that have very little biblical training and they're just sharing their ignorance. And there's a lot of heresy. And most of those people, they'll say, well, I really love God. But when you look at their lives, what are they really doing to reach the entire world with the gospel? Very little. How many are catching on that God really has a very definitive game plan? And we can't just go, well, I'm going to change the rules because, you know, see, in North America, this is what we're doing now. When something is a problem, we just legalize it. So we're just legalizing sin. Big deal. Do you think that's really going to help us? It's going to make things worse. God has a very definitive way he expects things to happen. Let me move on. Three ways that we withhold from God. Number one, a meaningful relationship. Number two, through our lack of worship as it's expressed in giving. Giving is an expression of worship and trust in God. Our giving reflects our obedience, which is a reflection of our love. Giving is one of the primary ways of freeing us from the bondage of materialism and consumerism, right? One way to break the heart bondage to being a taker is learn how to be a giver. If giving is a problem, the issue is the what? The heart. You know, I have really come to, you know, I've done all the studying in the last three months. I'm, I'm really writing a book called Give Me Your Heart. That's the core issue of Christianity. And the condition of our heart is the most important thing. We either have a broken heart, a hard heart, or a tender, loving, responsive heart. God says, give me your heart. Then God says, guard your heart. Isn't that amazing? A rereading of the book of Malachi will reveal a number of ways in which Israel had been unfaithful to God. In chapter 1, they were giving blemished animals as offerings. They were giving God the leftovers. Well, this is all I can afford God. God goes, no, no, I want the best. God wants the first and he wants the best of our lives. What are you giving God? Leftovers? I don't, I don't have time, Pastor. I'm, you know, I, used to, I was a youth pastor and young adults pastor. And these guys would you know, come into church and they were so messed up. You know, I said, well, why don't you go to bed early? Oh, we, got, we stayed up till 3 in the morning, coming late. And, I, and I'm watching them worship God. I said, why don't you, you guys should be preparing your hearts to worship God. You should be going to bed early. You should be meditating, getting up early, reading the word, coming to really give God your best. A lot of us, we know we do. We straggle in, we give God our leftover. That's not good. I mean, how many here, if, you know, think of it. You're God. You've just died for all these people, and they're just coming in and going, oh, i got a spare change here. What kind of an attitude is that? You know? Okay. He, well, I'm just kind of looking at it like, you know, somebody pours out their life for you and you're just going, I'm not satisfied, give me more. See, you know what I've noticed about people? The more you give them, the less appreciative they get and the more they ask for. How many have discovered that? And the people that have nothing to give, give their very best and they're always so appreciative. I think it's all to do with attitude. He said, you guys are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. He said... Then in Haggai, another time, it's the same thing. This is building the second temple. You know, they have to rebuild the temple. Of course, they're, they're not in a great shape, but he said, 
Now, I see you expect much, but it turns out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. He says, you're putting your lives first and the kingdom of God second. So he says, I'm just not going to bless what you're doing. That's what God is telling these guys. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the field and the mountains and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces on men and cattle and on the labor of your hands. In other words, I allowed you guys to go through a time of great inflation and you just don't, it's just, we're almost ready to hit inflation. And I don't think we realize what's going to happen. You're going to have, you're just not going to have a lot left over because everything's going to cost so much. And it's happened before, you know. We just think we have this, you know, entitled mentality. God goes, you're not, I don't have to do this. And you know what's really sad? When I was studying the book of Hosea here recently, you know what they were doing? They were, God was the one that gave the rains. They were having all of their agricultural products, the wine, new wine, the oil, the grains. And then they would take all those blessings and then they go worship the Canaanite gods. God goes, Really? I bless you, and then you squander it on that. And you go, oh, man, those guys are so, you know, we look at those guys just shaking our heads, right? But, you know, before you shake your head, take a look at how you're spending your own resources. Everything you have, God gave it to you. And what are you doing with it? You've got to ask yourself, what am I doing with it? Hmm, good question. Am I giving to God first? Third way that we withhold from God. It's his desire and willingness to bless us. Now, how can God entrust us with more when we can't handle what he's already given us? See, if we're, if we're not handling our finances properly, why would God give you more? You're already messing up with it. It's already messing you up. So why is he going to give you more to do more damage in your life? He's not going to do that. As a matter of fact, if you're a really good parent, you're never going to give your kids something that you know is going to cause damage to their lives. You're not going to do it. Here he says, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. This is the only text where God says, Bring him to the test. God says, Just try it. You know, one time I went to the board. This was years ago. You know, church was kind of struggling a bit. I says, I need to preach on giving, guys. And I said, here's what I want us to do as a board. Let's make a guarantee that at the end of the year, if anybody is unhappy with the fact that they started tithing, we'll give them all their money back. You know, the board members are looking at me like, really, Pastor, you want to do that? I said, sure. Don't you guys trust God? Don't you think that if they start tithing, God's not going to bless their lives? And so they said, oh, I guess so. They were really reluctant, you know, because the board, you know, they feel, they feel responsible to make this thing work right, right? They were a little reluctant to do that, but they said, okay, Pastor. And I got up one Sunday and said, hey, listen, if you guys start tithing, just, you know, we're not only going to, we're going to make such a guarantee, not only God says he's going to bless you, if you're unhappy, don't think it worked out the way it should have, just come and ask us at the end of the year. We'll just give you all the money you gave us. Give it all back to you. Everyone, you know what happened at the end of that year? Giving went up. And nobody came back and asked for anything. Isn't that amazing? You know, I remember reading years ago, Oswald J. Smith, who pastored a very famous church in Toronto People's Church during the 1930s, the Great Depression. Great missionary giving church. They would give a million, two million dollars a year in the 1930s to missions. They were sacrificing folks. And Oswald J. Smith, of course, he was just preaching, you know, why should everybody hear twice when nobody, some people have never heard once. I mean, he was really, this church was really a powerful, dynamic church. And he said, you know, people would come to him, and like they do, you know, do you know we have a steady stream of people coming to our church asking for help? It's just continuous here. But he said, I, I would ask them. I said, let me ask you a question. Are you a tither? All the people asking for help. And he said, not one of them told him that they were a tither. Isn't it amazing that when you and I honor God, God, will t- God honors us. God takes care of us. But if we're living in disobedience, why should God have to honor us? Hmm. A couple of concepts emerge from these passages. The first idea is that God has asked his people to test him in regards to this. This test, text also suggests giving beyond the tithe. 
You know, offerings were giving to those that were in need. Okay? So one of the, one of the very famous rabbis, Jewish rabbi in the Middle Ages, Mamardides, I don't know how to say his name, but he gave eight rules for giving, not, not tithing, offerings. Here's his eight rules. The lowest level of charity is to give grudgingly. The New Testament says we're not supposed to give grudgingly. Okay? Number seven level of charity is to give cheerfully, but less than one should. He's got a kind of a, you know, you know, kind of an order of things here. Number six level of charity is when one gives directly to the poor, but only after being asked. The fifth level of charity is to give directly to the poor without being asked. Fourth level of charity. In other words, these are, these are getting better, right? It's, it's, it's more important. The fourth level of charity is to give indirectly with the giver not knowing the identity of the recipient, but the recipient knows who the giver is. Third level of charity is to give indirectly with the recipient not knowing the identity of the giver, but the giving giver knows the identity of the recipient. The second level of charity is to give indirectly with neither recipient nor giver knowing the identity of one another. This is what Jesus meant when he said, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. That's what he means. He means you don't have control over how this is being allocated. That's what he's talking about. That's why to give to a communal charity is a powerful thing. You know, when you guys are giving to the church, do you realize where all this money's going? Unless you're a member, you don't have an idea. You know, unless you're a board member, you really have an idea. And let me tell you, it's going to all kinds of things. It's going to missions projects. You know, it's going to salaries. It's going, you know... Even heating the building. How many appreciate today the building's heated? You know, there's lights on. You know, how many it actually costs money to do that? Do you guys realize it's like $30,000, $40,000 a year to heat this building and to make the lights work? That's a, that's a few shekels, isn't it? Yeah, but people don't think that way. You know, and I'm always turning lights off. That's just my habit. <laughs> Because I, I tell the staff, if you guys are going to ask for salary increments and leave lights on, don't ask me. You know, <laughs> I'm funny that way. I was a church planter. I started with no nothing. You know, I've done it twice. I know what it's like. Number eight, the highest level of charity is to help a person before they become impoverished, whether by offering gift in a dignified manner, extending a loan, offering a job, or helping them begin with business on their own. Isn't that beautiful? In other words, giving people dignity. Instead of just giving them a fish, teaching them how to fish. That's what he's basically saying there. I love that. By the way, the other concept that we need to understand is what Malachi meant by the storehouse. What does he mean, give to the storehouse? Well, it's obvious in that context he was speaking of the temple, right? Nobody disputes that. But how many know, uh, well, look what happens here. Numbers 18.24, instead I give to the Levites as their inheritance the tithes that the Israelites present as an offering to the Lord. That is why I said concerning them they will have no inheritance among the Israelites. So, God designated a group of people that were to maintain the temple. You know, some of you don't realize this. This place doesn't happen by osmosis. All of the things that go on here every Sunday, there's a lot of work that goes on here. And I always love it, and I've said this before, the people who finally come on staff from the congregation have no idea what's going on here until they get here. And they go, how come there's so many people working here? Let me tell you, this is one busy place. 31 ministries are going on every week. That's a lot of stuff going on. It takes a lot of work to make all of that happen. But let me move on here. We can talk about the Levites and the priests and all that, but I'm going to skip over that. Now, this is what I think is fascinating. How many know the temple, when it was still, you know, it was destroyed once, right? Solomon's temple was destroyed at the exile. Then they moved back. Then they rebuilt the temple. But you know what? While they were in Babylon, they created the synagogue. And the synagogue was their meeting place where they kept Torah, the law, where they met as a community and they did, you know, they helped the poor and they read the word of God and somebody stood up and explained it to people. You follow all this? And in the time of the second temple in Jerusalem, at the time of the Apostle Paul and Jesus, there were actually 480 synagogues in Jerusalem alone. Well, one estimate. Another said there was 394. What does that mean? It means that there was a temple that offered sacrifices, but there were all kinds of different little, you know, what we'll call them house meetings, because they met basically in a home, but they weren't a home meeting. They had leaders. and I mean, those houses in those days, they could probably have two, 300 people sitting in a courtyard. So it wasn't a small scenario. 
Why am I saying all of this? Because we have to apply when we're, when we're, we're fulfilling this giving, where should we be giving? Well, to me, it's real simple. You tithe to your local church, and then you take your offerings, and you give it elsewhere. And I know if you're a millennial today, let me just pick on you for a minute. I know you love causes. That's great. I think the church is the greatest cause on earth. I'll tell you why. Jesus died for it. And if you're here, you know, and we're working with people all the time, your giving makes possible this ministry. I'm just telling you that. It wouldn't happen without you. And it's going on all the time. And so it's not like we're standing up here every day and I'm begging for money. You know, I'm not doing that. You know, or like our missionary friend, you know, I won't, he said, this one leader from another religion was at his door asking for money for the poor. And he said, I'm not going to give you any money. He goes, why not? He says, you're driving $85,000 Mercedes and the people in this country are making $300 a year. How many think there's a problem there? And sometimes that happens even in the Christian church, you know? But I can guarantee you, I've never made, you know, that kind of money. I don't have my own private airplane, you know? <laughs> Just telling you. So don't worry about that. I'm a salaried employee, <laughs> you know? Like the rest of our salaried employees. And, you know, these guys are really giving a lot of their lives. So I'm saying all of that to basically challenge us how tragic that money is often an idol that destroys our relationship with God. It's interesting, and I'm going to close with this thought, that Judas Iscariot was a thief who for 30 pieces of silver betrayed Jesus. Everybody know that? For 30 pieces of silver he betrayed Jesus. Secretly stealing funds ultimately led to his rejection of Christ. How many people have sold Christ out for money? I don't do that, Pastor. Well, if you're not giving what God's asking you to, aren't you actually stealing? Aren't you not robbing God? Have you ever thought of it that way? Never thought of it that way, Pastor. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be identified with Judas Iscariot. I don't want to be in his camp doing what he was doing. I want to move away from that real quick. So I'm just challenging us this morning. You know, I'm raising the question that Malachi raised, and I think it's equally valid today. Are we robbing God? Are we robbing God? If I'm not tithing, I'm robbing God. It's real simple. You go, that, that's just, man, that's direct, Pastor. You know, sometimes we have to be extremely direct for us to get it. And I'm just going to challenge you today. I'm just going to say, you know what? It's not about what the church needs. It's about what you need. Because if you're not tithing, minimum, you're not tithing. I don't believe you really have your financial house in order at all. So let's stand. I know that we are some of the richest people in the world. And if you don't think you are, maybe you're struggling and you say it's very expensive to live here, Pastor. I know all those things. You know, I know what it's like to get by from paycheck to paycheck. I've done that for years. But you know what? I've always tithed. That was a non-option for me. Not just because I'm a pastor. I'm going to shock you. There are some pastors that don't tithe. I'm serious. Just because somebody's a pastor doesn't mean they're doing everything right. That's true. You know what their attitude is? I give my time my whole life I don't, I don't think that way I don't walk around in our church and think you know because I'm a pastor you owe me I don't feel that way I've never operated in that principle I act the same way I'm, I'm in the same requirements I cannot say something to you and expect you to do something more than what I'm doing when I said to you you know I felt convicted I feel convicted if you're struggling financially and I haven't explained to you the principle of tithing, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. And I'm going to ask you to forgive me for not doing that. But you're here today and you're listening. And I'm telling you right now, if you're in a financial jam and you're not tithing, this is the way out of it. I'm, you, you go, your pastor doesn't make any sense. That's, that, that's, that's just not compute. Don't lean on your own understanding. Do not lean on your own understanding. Don't be wise in your own eyes. 
This is how you learn to trust God. Actually, I'm quoting from Proverbs chapter 3. My favorite verse, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your steps. That's verse 5 and verse 6. Verse 7 says, do not be wise in your own eyes. And verse 9 says, honor the Lord your God with your first fruits. Isn't that interesting? That's in a context right there. He's teaching us that we need to do this. So I'm going to do something. You know, every head bowed right now. Every head bowed. How many here say, Pastor, by the grace of God, I'm going to start tithing right now. Raise your hand. By the grace of God. I'm not here to just, yeah, that's great. Good. Very good. A lot of you. God's going to help you. I'm not here to judge you. I'm, I'm here to help you. You can put your hands back down. Put your hands down. That's great. I want to pray for you right now. I want you to. I want you guys to be in the next year or two to be in such good financial shape. You're going to go, Pastor, thank you for speaking to me on tithing. That businessman came to me about five or six months later and said, Pastor, thank you for speaking to me on this topic. It changed my financial life. And it'll, it brought freedom into his life. And that's what I want for you. I want, you're not going to get out of this in your own human thinking. Believe me. You know, what most of us do is the same thing we've always done. Isn't that true? If you want to see change, you have to do something to bring about the change. What am I telling you to do? To trust God. That's what I'm telling you to do. Right? Okay, here's the next. Some of you have been tithing for a long time. I've been over 40 years. But you know what? I'm raising my hand right now. Can I do more than what I've done in the area of offerings? I'm raising my hand. I'm going to go, Lord, help me. I'm going to do more. I'm going to do more in the area of offerings. i got my hand up. That means I've got to give to the church my 10%, which I do, but I'm going to give more to, you know, I'm going to give more to reducing the cost of the remodeling of the church. I'm going to give more to that. I'm going to give more to our missions. I'm going to give more. Matter of fact, I got challenged by one of our lay people. They said, my goal, they told me this, my goal before I die is to give away $1 million. I just never heard anybody talk like that. I got challenged by that person. I went, wow, you're amazing. That's your goal. See, some of us were going, my goal is to make a million dollars and to keep it. This person saying, I want to give a million dollars away. That means God's going to have to give them more than a million dollars for them to do that. How many can see that? Because you've got to live on something. So what they're saying is, God, I want you to trust me to be able to give away one million dollars. That's why I got my hands up. I'm saying, God, can you trust me to, so I can give away more than I ever have before? And maybe I'm going to spend less on things that I don't need necessarily need. I don't need that. So I'm going to just forego that. Instead, I'm going to give to this. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to see it, the fruit of it. Someone's life that's been changed. That's worth it. Is it not? Sure it is. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for this beautiful congregation. And I know that you're going to deliver us from financial tensions and strife and difficulty in our life. I pray that you'll help us to just be tithers and givers, Lord. Help us to be generous in our giving, Father. And may we see a great miracle of financial freedom come into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.